because my husband said if anybody in the back cannot hear me, he'll be delighted to change seats. <laughs> he also said that I must not forget to thank the committee for having us, and I do thank you. My name is Nancy, and I'm a sometimes grateful member of Al-Anon. <laughs> and when I'm not grateful, it's because I forget that if I had not found Al-Anon when I did, I'd be someplace with the key on the outside. And whether it would be correctional or custodial, we'll take a poll later. <clears throat> this is really not my favorite thing to do. In fact, on my list of favorite things, it's about two below breech twins without anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> But a long time ago, they told me we don't say no in Al-Anon. And maybe the second step will work someday, but I'm still trying. Um, the shaking will stop. I know that, and you must have faith. <laughs> it gets worse before it gets better. Anyway, I would like to read, because um, I can't shake and think, but I can shake and read. <laughs> I would like to read the message in our One Day at a Time little daily reading book um, that has helped me for many, many, many long years. Uh, the date is August 18th, if anybody else likes it. Some of us had a long list of grievances against the alcoholic, especially while the drinking was still active. The worst possible thing we can do is to remember them, dwell on them, and polish up our halos of martyrdom. The very best we can do is to erase them from memory so each new day becomes an opportunity to make things better. It is not my assignment to keep an inventory of my spouse's faults and misbehaviors. This is an aside. God knows they are many. <laughs> my task is to watch for my own and root them out so that what I say and do will help to make things better for me and for my family. And then we always have today's reminder, which is kind of a reprise of the same message. And at the bottom of the page, usually, we have a quotation that's relative to the message um, from someplace in literature that's rather famous. And that is so everybody will know that Al-Anon is really very cultural. <laughs> and this one is from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> the horror of that moment, the king said, I shall never, never forget. You will, though, said the queen, if you don't make a memorandum of it. <laughs> Standing here and twitching, always reminds me of a football coach we had back home. Um, he was a very popular guy, but he was very shy. And he hated public speaking. And he avoided it whenever he could. And of course, mostly he could. But when he was retiring, and they gave a banquet for him, he had to get up and say something. So he got up and he said, good evening, principal. Good evening, board of education. Good evening, 
athletes, and good evening, athletic supporters. <laughs> so taking a page from his book, I would like to say, good evening, alcoholics, and alcoholic supporters. <laughs> now, I'm supposed to tell how it was. Brokenness. Uh, I grew up in a household where there was no drinking, and drinking was frowned upon and talked very badly about. Now, that is to say, in the apartment that I lived in with my mother, father, maternal grandmother, uh, and eventually six siblings, I'm the oldest, there was no drinking and a lot of frowning. But in the apartment beneath us lived my grandmother and my father's stepfather. Now, normally he was referred to as my grandfather, but the instant he picked up a drink, he got demoted and he became my father's stepfather, and we made that very clear. Um, I lived in Greenwich Village in New York City, not in the artistic part, in the slummy part, down by the docks. And my grandfather worked down the docks, and he had a, a big hook hanging from his belt. And he was supposed to employ that hook uh, by sticking it in packing crates and, and you know, pulling them around the docks to wherever they were supposed to go. Unfortunately, when he drank, he liked to stick the hook in people who were not Irish. <laughs> uh, didn't make as much trouble for him as it might have because my father was a cop. And the local precinct had uh, unwritten orders. If um, on Saturday night my grandfather passed go <laughs> with his pay, if he did not come directly home, and they saw him other than absolutely upright. They didn't wait for him to do anything. They grabbed him. And then they called my father and my father would go get him. Um, but <laughs> once they got him home, he did not stay there nice and quietly. He tried like hell to get back out. And this could go on for a couple of hours till he passed out. So as a very young child, I associated the smell of booze and trouble, violence and yelling and all that kind of stuff. Um, I guess, well, see, we lived in this tenement. There were 18 apartments. Um, and in every apartment except ours, there were one, two or more drinking problems. And my father, uh, since he was a cop and did not drink, was the unofficial peacemaker for the whole building. Um, especially late on Saturday night, little kids, you know, would come tearing down in their nightshirt, banging on the door. And my father would go up and cool the guy down or make him take a walk, whatever seemed right. Hearing my father beg the lady to let him lock the guy up and teach him a lesson. And of course the lady would say, oh no, I don't want him to have a record. And at seven or eight years of age, I thought to myself, not only would I lock him up, I would throw away the key. So I was rather judgmental as a child. Now the first time I tasted booze myself was sixth grade. Um, it was only beer, and it was in the girls' bathroom at school. Now, I went to parochial school, so the girls drank in the girls' bathroom, and the boys drank in the boys' bathroom, and we did not mingle. <laughs> and I didn't really see what the kids thought was so great about it, because um, smell hadn't improved any, and I did not like the taste. But I had this problem. It, it, from early on, and by sixth grade, it was fully rooted. 
And that was that I wanted everybody to like me. Didn't matter if I hated you, I wanted you to like me. And I had a lot of strikes against me. Uh, first place, my father was a cop, as I said, and everybody else's father was a robber, not to appear too judgmental. Uh, I was fat, I was young for the grade, I had buck teeth. Oh, and while I was young for the grade, most kids left sixth grade, that was it. Um, if they were boys, the judge usually gave them their choice because they were in sixth grade age, you know, they got left back about four times. And the judge usually gave them their choice of reform school or the army. That's some indication of my neighborhood. Um, and, you know, about half of the girls were pregnant and just left. So, uh, as I say, I was fat. I had buck teeth, glasses. My father was a cop. I was younger than everybody else, and I got the highest marks in the class. None of these things make you popular in sixth grade, and it's a lot to overcome. Uh, so from then on, whenever the, the beer or whatever appeared, uh, I would make believe I liked it, you know, to be one in the crowd and be popular. And what it did for me was it uninhibited me. I didn't care so much whether you liked me or not. And as time went on, I was inclined to do things guaranteed to make you not like me. And I was delighted at that. But um, when I went to high school, I went to high school uptown in a nice neighborhood. And there I met kids whose parents drank, didn't throw the furniture at each other, or sneak it out to the pawn shop if they could carry it. And I came to see that drinking could be sophisticated and fun. And I decided that when I got old enough, I was going to marry somebody who drank and was sophisticated and fun. Not like my square parents with their one-track minds. I mean, all they seemed to think about was having kids. And this was beginning to irk me. I, I can remember, I, I was in high school, and I worked in the five and 10 part-time, and I handed over my whole pay, and as far as I could see, I got nothing back. And I asked for shoes or, I mean, I was the oldest and I get, did get like first crack at winter coats that were to be handed down, that kind of thing, but uh, nothing, nothing extra that I wanted. So whatever it was that I wanted, my father said, um, sorry about that, you know, it's not your turn. And I was really livid. And I said to my father, I don't see why I have to suffer because you have all these children. And my father said, <coughs> Excuse me, am I paying tuition in Catholic high school so you can promote birth control? And I said, no, self-control. So I was still a little judgmental in high school. Uh, anyhow, when I met my present husband, that keeps him on his toes, uh, I thought he was sophisticated and fun. Um, of course, up to then, my life was the family rosary in bed at nine, so I would have thought anything was sophisticated and fun. Uh, I also thought two in a bed was an improvement over three in a bed, so. <coughs> I mean, he had a car. Um, he knew what drink went in what glass and with what. Um, couldn't wait to get out of there uh, and go with him and live. Um, when I discussed my nuptial plans with my father, he sighed from his boots because he had one of, one of his little FBI checks on Johnny's family. And he said they were all right, but they drink. And the Irish can't drink, and they shouldn't. Look at your grandfather. <clears throat> he didn't know 
that Johnny drank. Because when Johnny came to call, my father would give him a big glass of milk, and my father had an equally big gun, and Johnny would drink the milk and say, thank you. <laughs> um, I, of course, did not pay any attention to him because, you know, he was an old square. What did he know? Um, now, my game plan for happiness and success in this life when we got married was that we should not have children until we had $3,000 in the bank. And this is 1951, $3,000 wouldn't last a month today, but back then it was a princely sum. Um, so I told God this. It was my custom to tell him things so he wouldn't screw up. <laughs> uh, and because I was a good Catholic, I didn't do anything to not have children. I just had given him the word there. Um, so when, when we had a mist, I think that's the first time I said we. I used the pronoun I all the time in those days. Um, when we had amassed the $3,000, I said to God, okay, go, and avoid. Because I always planned ahead, and I figured a boy could get dates for his sister, take out the garbage, you know, and do all sorts of useful things. Um, and nothing happened. Now, you know, once or twice God had dragged his feet when I wanted something, um, and I had learned how to cope with it. Copious novenas, medals on the undershirt, prayers night and day. The same kind of thing that worked on my father, because whatever that was that I wanted, I did get. Because I firmly believe that the squeaky wheel does get the grease. And if you just keep it up long enough, you'll get it. So um, I did all of the above to God. Um, but I didn't just, uh, you know, I always believed you have to pray, but you have to row too. So I had invested the sterility problem, investigated. Um, and I bought this special thermometer. It was very finely calibrated, like in tenths of a degree. And you take your temperature every day, and if it drops the tenth, then you're fertile. So now, uh, on the way to amassing my 3,000 and whatever I had decided, you know, with the next figure, Johnny was working eight to five, two, three hours of overtime a day. He worked in Manhattan, and we lived in Queens, which is a little bit outside of it. He took two subways and a bus to do this <laughs> each way. And he'd come dragging in 9 or 10 o'clock at night, you know, with his eyes crossed, barely able to move, and there I'd be with my thermometer. <laughs> the plan, the plan. <laughs> and it worked. I got pregnant, um, and I had a boy. And I couldn't see this having them close together like my mother and father, you know. I thought two years would be a nice interval, uh, and then I should have a girl. So uh, when the time would be that it would be possible to be two years between them, I gave God the word again, um, and nothing happened again. I had to go to the whole shmir with the thermometers and the novenas and the medals. <clears throat> and I guess I was losing faith a little because uh, we had decorated nicely for the boy, nice, you know, boy's room. But for the girl, it was going to be perfecto. And Johnny and I share many traits. And one of them is, we either do 200% or we do nothing. Now, fortunately, usually I'm on a 200 roll and he's on a nothing, so the thing gets done. Um, once in a while, we're together. We're both doing 200 and look out, then world. And this was one of the 200% on both sides efforts. Um, I researched wallpaper. The room had gross cracked walls, and, and my attack was cover them up, you know, don't try and fix them. So I, I researched gorgeous wallpaper patterns, and Johnny researched hanging wallpaper, and um, I hedged my bed a little, and I make it pink, just in case God was really screwed up. 
and it made it green and yellow. And the pattern was rocking horses. And about that time, uh, Johnny the Sophisticate was improving his breakfast, coffee, and orange juice with vodka. And I was starting to think that wasn't so sophisticated nor so much fun. But I remember I wanted everybody to like me, and that included Johnny. So I didn't say anything, I just worried a little. So um, one Saturday morning, he drank all his improved beverages. And of course, breakfast went on until lunch, and then uh, lunch was improved also. Um, but when he started, and you understand that I was the foreman and he was the worker, you do understand that. When he um, put up the first panel, it hung beautifully. You couldn't tell the wall was cracked. Very nice. And the second panel made it so beautifully that, you know, you couldn't even see the line of demarcation. Third panel was getting a little sloppy because breakfast was still continuing. Um, speed it up, by the time he got to the first corner, the nose of one rocking horse was up the anal canal of the neck. <laughs> and somehow I knew that to comment would mean I'd be wearing the, wearing the pail of paste on my head. So I kept my mouth shut. But I, I really was starting to think that um, drinking around the clock and etc. was not half as sophisticated as I used to think from a distance. Um, I, I always used to say I, I was thrifty, but with a little honesty in the program I know today that I'm cheap. And I wouldn't even buy shoelaces until I had made five stops and made sure I had the best price. Uh, not realizing, of course, that shoe leather costs more than shoelaces, etc. But um, at the time I didn't realize. So when I got married and I found out how much those big bottles of booze cost, I almost croaked. <laughs> and I said, there must be a cheaper way. And I found it. And that's to buy it by the case. And if you buy a couple of cases, it's even cheaper and so forth. And so that's what I used to do. It was one of my 200% efforts. Uh, but now that I was getting worried, I, I ceased uh, being the supply officer. Didn't cut the consumption down any, but you know, I. Passive-aggressive, I felt that I was trying. <coughs> um, after a while, things were really getting really bad, and um, I still wanted Johnny to like me, although I was starting to suspect that he didn't. Um, so when I felt it necessary to inform him of the effects of his drinking and um, the bad times and, and so forth and so forth that he did it, I started very gently very, very gently, and I hinted genteelly, like a little parochial school, parochial school girl would, that he drank too early, too often, and with piss-poor results. <laughs> and he didn't greet this news with little cries of pleasure, I want you to know. He was very nasty and very hostile. And it shortly became very clear to me that he didn't like me. And I hated him with a blue flame. So it was war. I was going to stop him or kill him. And I wasn't too fussy which one came first. <laughs> From my readings of Good Housekeeping and Ladies Home Journal and things like that, uh, it had become clear to me that if you imbibe alcohol in depth, you should get physically sick. And he did imbibe in depth, but you know, he was young and strong and it wasn't hitting him yet. So it occurred to me that if he got physically sick, 
he would go to the doctor. And I, having primed the doctor, the doctor would tell him to cut down on his drinking, and we would live happily ever after. So I used to put extracts in the chocolate pudding. <laughs> and then when he got the runs, I had some pills because the dog had had worms. I gave him the dog pills. <clears throat> but he didn't get, you know, sick enough in his mind to go to the doctor. So I used to buy the cheapest package of chopped meat I could find, let it sit there in its little wrap on my counter, two, three, four days, watch it turn colors, and then I used to broil it, because broiling is more healthful than frying. <laughs> and I would serve it up, and he ate it. And he never got sick enough to go to the doctor. He said I was a rotten cook, <laughs> but he never went to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and about that time on the radio, uh, Gillette used to have something called the Friday Night Fight. Well, we used to have them Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, and, and what have you. Um, now, in the beginning, if Johnny started any little ruckus in the house, I didn't want the neighbors to hear. So I would run around, close the door, seal the windows, try and, you know, keep it calm. Now, I'm out in the middle of the lawn making proclamations at the top of my lungs. Now we have a couple of those automotive incidents where he's driving the car down the block and I'm on the windshield obscuring his vision <laughs> so he'll crash. <clears throat> um, you know, I guess it started like nobody should think I'd bear this in silence and then it took on a life of its own. And we were rapidly getting to be known as the town nuts. You know, people drove by and pointed. <laughs> So I decided this was bad for the kids. Um, but he wasn't amenable uh, to my suggestions that we move to a nicer neighborhood. He wasn't amenable to anything that I suggested. So I said, I'll move and not tell him. Uh, <laughs> now, I have been kind of playing Monopoly with real houses. Um, I had two two-family houses and then the house we lived in. And they were all in both our names, which was only fair. You know, we had both worked for them. Uh, I just figured Johnny was not going to be the gracious kind that would shake hands, split the assets, and, you know, agree on visiting with the children hours, because he, uh, he was rather irrational to be charitable at that time. Um, I was passing a stationery store one day when I was in a slightly less good mood than usual. And I went in and perused the stock, and sure enough, they had blank deeds. So I bought a handful. And the next time he ticked me off, um, which was probably that night, I sat down and started copying the deeds. And I didn't have a typewriter. And that was his fault, because he drank. I had three houses, but I didn't have a typewriter, and that was his fault. But the spirit was on me to copy these deeds, so I had to do it in longhand. Now, I stopped drinking when Johnny's drinking became a problem to me. Because if I had nothing, he'd give me the car key. But if I had anything at all, he would start this big mathematical permutation whereby, I don't understand it, I just repeat it, whereby he divided the number of ounces I had into my body weight, the number of ounces he had into his body weight, and proved conclusively that I couldn't even walk, let alone drive. So rather than have the car key hassle, I just stopped drinking. But I took up eating. So when we had these Friday night bouts, I was in good shape. I weighed about 168 pounds, and I wasn't any taller than I am now. So while I was copying all these deeds in longhand, you know, there's 
had seven or eight little snacks in the course of the evening, and there's peanut butter on them and jelly and potato chips and Pepsi, little chocolate crumbs. Um, the handwriting goes up and down. Uh, there's a couple of tear stains. I wasn't, wasn't too much given, uh, though, uh, to self-pity, because if I momentarily felt bad, I didn't sit and brood about it. I said, let's spread this around, and I went and made somebody else unhappy. <laughs> so I'm happy to say all those deeds uh, stood up at a later, you know, at later scale, because there's no law says they have to be typewritten. It's just a hell of a lot easier on the reader. Um, anyway, at that time, Johnny took care of all international and national affairs, and I took care of everything else, everything domestic. So he was dropping the bomb on Red China or something the next night. And I popped up to him and I said, hey, General, sign these. And he did. <laughs> Thereby transferring all our worldly goods into my name. And so the next morning I romped around all the county courthouses and registered the new deeds, making me the sole owner of our entire estate. And then I set out to sell the house without his knowing it, which was not really a big problem because he was interested in all these big things. Um, I'll tell you what was the problem, showing the house, <laughs> which contained a naked body which would not stay in one place. <laughs> I mean, you'd leave him in one room and then you'd be showing a, a party through and he'd turn up in the kitchen in that, and it was not a gorgeous naked body either, I gotta tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I had heard these horror tales of people that, um, bought a house and then they couldn't get rid of the old one and they were stuck with the commitment to the new and so forth. So I did it, you know, the right way. I made sure I sold the first one before I even started to look for the second one. Um, what a jolt. At that time on Long Island, where I live, all of the real estate men and all of the bankers were male chauvinist pigs. <laughs> they did not want to even show a house let alone bankroll it, to a woman with, oh, I forgot Tommy, that's Freudian. Somewhere in there, even though I, I'm sure I had broken my thermometer over my knee, I had become pregnant again, and I was not pleased. And I kept eyeing the refrigerator and wondering if I climbed up and jumped off, it would do the trick. But I think with my luck, I'd break my leg and lay there for a week till I came home. So I was traipsing around all these real estate places, I had a ponytail that I could sit on simply because I was too busy to cut it. And it was held back with a rubber band that was full of knots because I wouldn't buy a new rubber band because, you know, that might be bread next week. And I had these sneakers with bunion holes, not because I had bunions, but that's how old they were. <clears throat> and uh, I'm bopping in, <laughs> dragging two kids and pregnant with a third and, and laying out my demands for what this house I'm looking for must have. Um, first place, it shouldn't be too expensive. Second place, it should be within easy walking distance of trans transportation and stores because I didn't figure I could afford a car. Uh, third place, there must be a Catholic school that did not charge tuition. Um, fourth place, part of it should be all ready to be rented out. Um, and they didn't even want to show me a house, let alone listen to my plan. But I made a few pregnant scenes for the realtors and, and uh, <laughs> Rather than have me deliver on their doorstep, they, uh, they did show me a few houses. And then I found out the bankers were worse. They wouldn't even consider anything unless you had a wage earner who would sign a bond on the mortgage. 
Now, the only wage earner I knew that would sign things was Johnny. <laughs> he had already proved he would sign anything. So he was in some hospital with his jaw wired, and I didn't do it. He took a little tumble by himself. Um, so I bopped up there and I said, hey, the neighborhood's become a slum, we're moving. And he said, fine. <laughs> he always said, fine, you know. So uh, very, very strong currents were running through my mind. Uh, bring him to the closing, start him talking about baseball or football. He won't know what the hell he's signing or where the property is, and he'll never find us because, you know, he's got all those big things to worry about. But he had, at that time, about 10,000 records, most of which were those old 78s, which are heaviest, can be. And I guess it was, I am cheap, and it was the thought of paying a mover man to move all of them instead of him. Anyway, took them with us. Um, but, but before I tell you about how nice it was when we got there, I have to tell you about the last Christmas before we moved. That, oh, that was something else. Uh, I was pregnant, and uh, I decided that I was fragile besides pregnant. Now, every year prior to that, and as a kid, as my mother was always having babies, so she was always delicate, recovering, about to something, right? So I did all this stuff at home. Um, so I had been the Christmas tree getter, you know, like since I was 12 years old. And I always got it about five minutes to midnight on Christmas Eve, because by then the guys wanted to go home and they practically give them to you. But this year I decided that I was pregnant and fragile and that getting a Christmas tree was much too heavy work for a fragile pregnant woman and that Johnny should get the tree. So Johnny said certainly. You know, he never said no to anything. He always said certainly and he never did anything. So I, I had made this determination maybe two weeks before Christmas. And every time I saw him, I brought him up to date. And of course I always screamed to, you know, be sure I had his attention. Um, and the days dwindled down, and that year, Christmas was on, Christmas Eve was on a Sunday, Christmas was on Monday. So everybody had Friday night, Saturday day, Sunday, to get their tree. And most sensible people did. But I just sat there with my ponytail and said, get the tree. And he just lay there, wherever he was laying, and said, certainly. And nothing happened. And my oldest little boy was, I guess, seven big enough to realize that if one of them don't move their ass, we're not going to have a tree. So he was getting very, very nervous. And Christmas Eve night, he really didn't want to go to bed. And he quivered his lips and, uh, I mean, he was scared out of his gourd at me because my normal speaking voice was a shriek and when I was mad, it got worse. So he kind of hovered on the top step and said, uh, are we going to have a tree? And the good mother in me rose to the surface. And I said, don't worry, that bastard will not keep you from having a tree if I have to go out in the snow myself, because it was snowing by then. So I didn't put my boots on, because <clears throat> you can't feel sorry for yourself with dry feet. <laughs> and I knew I had to go. I had a little test. See, Johnny spent most of his time at home passed out. And sometimes he faked it, thinking that I would shut up if I you know, thought he was passed out. So I had a little test to see if he was faking it or not. I would light a match, pull up his eyelid, hold the match right by the colored part of his eye, and if it didn't try to get away from the match, then I knew he was really gone, and he was safe to leave. You know, he wouldn't set fire to the house or do anything to the kids or anything. 
So um, I gave him the match test, and um, he was truly gone. Uh, so I had to go. But I really didn't think it was going to be that big a deal because we lived in a neighborhood that was not very built up. And about five blocks away, there was a big boulevard that had a lot, a lot of empty lots. And the last time I was out, it was wall-to-wall Christmas tree vendors and all these empty lots. So now I pop up there and I'm yelling, you know, the carolers are going to, <laughs> carolers are carolers and people are going to midnight mass and I'm screaming bah humbug, you know, with my sneakers and my ponytail. And I get up there and they're all, they've all folded their tents and gone. Oh, Lordy. You know, good mother has to have a tree on Christmas Day. So there was another big avenue about five blocks further. So I marched on over that way, and they were all gone. Holy cow. I saw looking around for a Protestant church. I still had ethics, and I would not steal a tree from a Catholic church. <laughs> and Protestants usually have trees that are smaller anyway, more suitable for a fragile pregnant woman. And, you know, I had done all that crap about the fragile and everything. And, and we had put, in that period, just before, we had put tile, new tiles down in part of the kitchen. And Johnny had moved the radiator with the help of another guy to the far side of the kitchen so they could work unimpeded and not have to cut around the legs. And I kept saying, will you please put that radiator back? And he kept saying, certainly. And he never did it. And one day I got this fit. The radiator is going back. And I myself carried the radiator, fragile and pregnant. The two of them had moved, and I carried it over and plumped it in its place. So uh, when my adrenaline was pumping, look out. So just then I saw down the boulevard a, a string of Christmas tree light from a building out to a pole. And there was a little guy still open. But he didn't have any honest-to-God trees left. It was getting to be an apartment house area now, and he had cut off, you know, tops and bottoms so they fit in apartments, and he had a big pile of that. And I don't know what I said to him or what I did or what, but I know the guy drove me home with a whole big pile of tops and bottoms. <laughs> um, and when I got in the house, he was still laying there, and he still wasn't responding to the match, and I hit him with every piece of pine I had. When he was in AA a while and he started to go to Al-Anon things <laughs> and hear Al-Anon speakers, he used to say, if I knew then what I know now, I would have had an order of protection. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I decided that I would, uh, whatever I would make of it, I would put it up on the mantelpiece on top of the fireplace. And when anybody would say, because I always had these imaginary conversations, um, if anybody would say, why have you got that squinchy little thing up on top of your fireplace? I would say, well, Maureen is toddling around and she might pull it down. That's dangerous, so I put it up there. Okay, yeah, I'm still trying to please the crowd in general. They shouldn't think badly of me. So I tied and wired it and I got it into the semblance of a tree and I got it up on the fireplace such that it couldn't be pulled down, even by me, and um, dragged out the decorations and decorated it beautifully and uh, dragged out the hidden presents. So now we're up to maybe 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and you would think that a fragile pregnant woman would be tired now and go to sleep. But my adrenaline was still pumping. And I said to myself, my son should have electric trains. If his father wasn't a drunken bum, he would have electric trains. And out in the garage were my husband's electric trains from 1910 or something which I had never laid on. So in fact, I don't think I'd ever been close to electric trains in my life because in my house, somebody was sleeping on a pull-out couch everywhere. There was no place to put the tracks. Anyway, I dragged them all down, uh, filthy boxes, and knocked everything around, dragged them in the house, and 
got them cleaned off and set up and plugged them in. And I don't know if they were AC or DC or what, but they were not compatible to the wiring in the house. But the house did not catch fire, and I got the lights back on, and I rationalized that uh, for children that age, it's better they push them and use their small muscles. Um, <laughs> and now, I guess we're pushing 5.30 or so, I lay myself down in my little white bed to sleep the good sleep of the just, having done a good night's work for a pregnant woman who's fragile. And maybe a half hour later, the kids are at my bed, oh, Mom, it's just Christmas, and I'm young little bastards, get out of here. You know, the good mother speech for Christmas morning. Anyway, if anybody had tried, uh, uh, you know, to tell me that I was not doing the best job that could be done at that time, I probably would have hit them besides saying terrible things. Because I really thought I was doing the best that could be done in a very difficult situation. Um, then we moved shortly after Christmas, and um, I had made this resolution that in the new place we were not going to be the town nuts. You know, I was always the odd man out. When I lived in the slums, we were not allowed to play down the street like other kids. We were not allowed to steal hubcaps or do any fun things because my parents kept telling us we were different, we were better, we were nice people, etc., which only made us, you know, seem like freaks. Now I lived in suburbia where you could see trees, um, and we were hitting and throwing and riding on cars and so forth. So I decided in the new place, which was even more suburbia and had even more trees, uh, would you like to know why I picked the location that I picked? I was a championship type bowler at the time because I saw Johnny's face on the head pin and it inspired me. <laughs> now that's a good reason, you know, to buy a house in a given location, the, the fact that uh, it's near your bowling alley, which it was. Um, so back to the lousy male chauvinist pig bankers. I even had explained to them my plan. I mean, I knew that I was a woman without visible means of support and had so forth, but my plan was this. In addition to the bowling alley on the main avenue there, there were a lot of restaurants. And all the kitchen workers, little Puerto Rican guys, about four foot three. And this house had bedrooms upstairs that I didn't need. And I figured I could sleep the day shift up there and the night, the night shift up, because they're all trying to save their money, you know, either to go home or send home. Uh, they want cheap accommodations. I figured I could have five or six in a room. Um, I had a godmother who was about to retire with a pension. And there was another stove down the kitchen, uh, another kitchen and stove down the basement. I figured I'd stick her down there with a, her pension. No, I'd stick her down there with a stove and I would take her pension. And I could make it until Tommy was big enough that I could go to work. But as I say, they, they wouldn't listen to anything. So Johnny did sign the thing and he did sort of help pack his 10,000 records. And, um, and we moved. And in the new house, there was a room in the basement partially under the garage. and. And I had tested, you could play loud music there, and it couldn't be heard outside. So I told him that was his den. And for the most part, I just didn't talk to him. But when I really couldn't hold my tongue, um, you know, at something really outrageous or something that looked like it threatened the job, uh, then I would lure him into his den, and then I would say, you know, why don't you stop, why don't you paper off, whatever my theme of the moment. Um, and then his answer would be louder and longer, and then we could coexist um, for a little while longer. It sounds so weird to me always. Um, I know it was 1963 when I found Al-Anon, but the, for the life of me, I cannot reconstruct what month it was. I just know um, that it was early in the year. And Johnny was enjoying a little stay at 
state expense, um, the custodial kind. And being a good Christian woman, I went up to visit the sick. Um, although I didn't really think he was sick, I thought he was, you know, you know what I thought he was. Um, and he introduced me to this man. And the man was a member of AA. And the man was not in there for drinking. Um, the man had unbelievable things wrong with him as a result of his previous drinking. He had, he had only one arm, so the worst thing, I think. Uh, he had been cleaning his carburetor with a cigar in his mouth, and it hadn't worked out. And he had um, alcoholic nephritis, and he had hepatitis, and he had medications for, for all these things, uh, and he had overdosed on them, and, and he lived alone in a boarding house, and um, he said it was an accident, but the state didn't think so. Um, and he was such a nice man and such a gentleman. I really couldn't understand how he could even have a conversation with Johnny, you know, let alone stand to be in his company very long. Um, after a couple of days, um, <laughs> they said Johnny was not an alcoholic. I mean, was not crazy. He was just an alcoholic. He had the highest IQ they ever passed through there, and he made the best wallet. And they released him. <laughs> and I'm so lucky they didn't keep me. When, when they used to give that diagnosis, and you know, it wasn't the first time I heard it, I used, I used to really go quite bananas. But you see, they never said anything beyond the word alcoholic, they, and they never, ever said AA or Al-Anon. And you know, how could he be an alcoholic? He had a good job, he wore suits, he had clean nails, you know, it, it, it just didn't make sense. I was sure he was crazy, and I was sure I was going to find a hospital that would do the lobotomy and everything would be okay. Uh, but that wasn't the one. Anyway, when they gave him his mustering out speech, um, they suggested that it is not good form once you've been released to come back and visit your friends. Now, <laughs> another trait that we share, best way to get either one of us to do anything is tell us not to, and to get us not to do it is to tell us to do it. So the very next day, Johnny went back to visit Tony. <laughs> and Tony by then knew that he was being shipped, you know, to a permanent uh, psychiatric hospital. And I could not believe that, you know. He was such a nice man, and this loon, they, they turned loose again. Anyway, Tony told Johnny that he would have a rough go there in the beginning. He had been to such places before, but now he only had one arm. He couldn't even cut his food. And he said, in the beginning, everybody in, in the intake unit is mad that they're there and they won't help each other and he's probably starved to death. So he asked Johnny if he would get him some stuff, um, canned goods and stuff that would make it possible for him to survive until he got sorted out and, you know, put into an alcoholic unit. So Johnny, of course, commissioned me to make these purchases because I'm such a marvelous shopper. So I went out and got you know, spaghetti and meatballs and stuff like that that you could heat in the warm water in the basin. And I got an electric can opener um, that you could operate with one hand, which was something to, you know, accomplish in those days. And it cost 30, 40 bucks. Uh, and the bag was sitting on my counter next to the chopped meat. And Johnny never went to see Tony ever, never again. And the bag was sitting there winking and blinking at me, saying 30 bucks, 30 bucks, 30 bucks. So, um, through no altruism at all, but to get my 30 bucks back, I took the bag out to Tony at Pilgrim State Hospital. Now, through all these funds and games, which a lot of times through cops, I never told anybody other than cops, policemen, uh, doctors, judges, things like that, uh, how we were living. I had just cut my family off because I was not about to say to my father, you know, you're right or I need help or anything like that. And ditto for friends. I didn't want to be embarrassed, so I just didn't see them anymore. 
So my circle was down to me and the kids. And I was my own higher power. And I did anything that I deemed necessary for the well-being of me and my kids. A lot of it was illegal, most of it was immoral. Uh, one of the lesser things, if somebody should decide to copy it, um, four or five years there, I never put a stamp on an envelope when I mailed it. I knew that all the big companies had little rooms where they accepted postage due and just, you know, paid it without a grumble. And if I were writing you a letter, I would write my name and address on the front, yours up in the back, and when they returned it to you for non-postage, you had the letter and I had saved the nickel. So anyway, Tony said to me, how are you? And I proceeded to tell him chapter and verse how Johnny was. And I was the soul of tact. You see, my message was all centered around. He did all these dreadful things and they let him loose. And you're such a nice man and they kept you. But no matter what I would say, he would say, but that doesn't mean he's crazy. He's just an alcoholic. And I would scream, you know, he had a knife to my throat. He tried to throw me down the stairs, litanies. And he would just keep saying, he's just an alcoholic. And I didn't get mad, you know, like I used to with the doctors. Uh, and he must have put a few twos and twos together back when I had been introduced to him because he produced from his pocket a little meeting book uh, with the Al-Anon groups near me circle. And he told me they were all women whose husbands used to drink and they didn't anymore. And you know I was going. No matter how far, <laughs> no matter what the fee, <laughs> I mean... One of my hobbies at that time was getting insurance policies on Johnny. <laughs> and uh, it was getting increasingly difficult. Uh, we pre preferred the ones without physicals, but you can't get that much coverage at a time, so then you have to do it more often. And they have all these embarrassing questions about have you been in the hospital and everything. Um, so we had just had one. And before the doctor came, he was, and I always arranged it to be at home. Uh, he was artistically propped in the corner with, you know, pillows wedging him up. And, uh, of course, I know today that who does insurance physicals, especially door-to-door? -door? It's either young interns moonlighting or it's AA guys making their comeback. And in either case, they really don't care too much. And I thought I was being so slick. Anyway, the, the guy was looking a little quizzical and, and asking questions, and um, I was giving all the answers, and Johnny was smiling. And I guess he probably got off on the Dodgers or something there. And uh, I ushered him out. Johnny slid off the couch. And I knew, you know, we couldn't do this too much longer. Um, so adding up the sum total of his insurance policies versus the sum total of his paychecks for as long as he continued to be employed, it was obvious that no matter what the fee would be, it would be worth it if it worked. And I'll tell you, the first night I went to Eleanor, I was, I was not that thrilled. They had all these little signs on the wall. Think. First things first. I said, oh, see Dick run. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say it out loud, but you know, I never died proof, I'll be president in a month. Um, and my first shock was, first place there were men there, he told me they were all women. Uh, and, and everybody there did not have somebody that was sober. But I figure it's like the convent, you know, they have an novitiate and you work your way up. And at the end, instead of a veil, you get a sober person. And I didn't believe the no dues of fees crap either. I figured they stuck you in and then they hit you with the big fee to join for real and that makes up for all the no dues of fees that went before. But as I said, it would be worth it. 
uh, if, you know, if I had to keep going back and back to get the real secret, by God, I would do it because I was not a quitter. I'll tell you, nothing that they said um, of truth or beauty impressed me. Well, I guess I didn't hear it. See, at the time, I was given to talking out loud while other people were talking because I had all these things going around in my head. <coughs> my houses and my money and, you know, how long was the call is and was he in or out or up or down and so, and so forth and so forth. You know how I lived at that time? I had all my money, worldly goods, anything negotiable, in my wallet, in my waistband of my slacks. And I had a big sharp knife in there too. And all the other knives were hidden. And when I lay down at night, I put the wallet between the mattress and the inner spring. And then I put the big sharp knife. And I lie down on my side so I could clutch it. And instead of evening prayers, I used to say, he may get me, but I ain't going alone. <laughs> and he's not getting my wallet. Uh, so needless to say, anything they said of truth or beauty, I either said BS or I didn't even hear it. That the first thing I heard there that made sense, and this was after several visits, um, was that if somebody's got 40, 50 pounds on you and five or six inches, and they say, I'm going to bash you, crash you, smash you, dash you, anything of that nature, it is not clever to stick your face out and say, I dare you. <laughs> I could see some sense in that. You know, I had, I had proved that true myself. Uh, I'll tell you what they got through to me about was my kids and what a horrible, awful influence I was being on them. Um, for a little parochial school girl, my mouth was something else. You know, never mind when I was near, just ordinary speech would have made my grandfather blush on Saturday night. And when I was near, forget it altogether. Um, Maureen was pushing four, I guess, at the time, and she was very tiny for her age. And even though I didn't comb or wash my own hair, she had blonde curls and a ribbon in them at all times, and bows on her socks, and just too, too cute for words. And uh, we were driving on the parkway, and this chap thought he was going to cut in front of me. And I was not fond of men at this time. So I blew my horn, my car was way bigger than his, and I aimed right at the crack between his doors. And dainty, perky little Maureen stuck her head out the window, extended her middle finger, and shrieked, Up yours, Jack! <laughs> totally uncoached. <laughs> you know, and I knew I had to take credit, because uh, <laughs> her father hadn't been awake and talking in her hearing at some time. <laughs> So, uh, bit by bit, I, I tried to get my act together a little bit. Um, I, I had trouble getting out after a while because, see, in the beginning, well, I just gave him the match test and left. But, but when a little sanity started to penetrate my mind, I realized that what I was leaving besides this large nude body was an eight-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, a puppy. I had big plans for him. He was a Doberman. Um, <laughs> And if there were a flyer there, my son would probably have tried to get himself, in, you know, in order of importance, the dog, the baby, and his sister, out. Um, he never would have told the father, the fireman, that his father was in here because we didn't tell nobody, nothing. I had him in a private school at, at the time, a very fancy private school with very high tuition. And I had talked him into a scholarship. And he got picked up in a limo and delivered in a limo. And everybody there, their father was a lawyer, their mother was a lawyer, and their grandmother was a judge. And then it was us. But we didn't take Dad to too many functions, I must admit. 
And they would say, and where is your husband? And I would say, oh, he's on a trip. And he was. <laughs> it was on the floor by the refrigerator, but it was a trip. Because somewhere in there, I had, you know, kept saying he was crazy, and he had gone to a doctor to uh, shrink to prove he wasn't, and a guy gave him a prescription for Librium. And it came to my attention when it was useful for him to be passed out, and he wasn't doing it fast enough, that if I kept saying, take your pills, he would keep taking the pills, and then he would pass out, and then I would give him the match test, and he would be safe to leave. But you see, now all these things are starting to, to penetrate the mark, that this is really not good, not a good way to live, and so forth and so forth. Um, I couldn't agree with Al-Anon or the AMA for a long, long time uh, that alcoholism is a disease. Because I figured the AMA were all men, they were all drunken bums too. But Al-Anon persuaded me to go to open AA meetings and talk to recovering people. Uh, what I think they were hoping was that I would stay there. Because <laughs> we do lose a lot of good recruits that way. Uh, but they didn't want me either. <laughs> um, and, and eventually I did, I did come to believe uh, that alcohol was the problem and was a disease. See, I preferred crazy to alcoholic any old day. For crazy, you get 13 weeks full pay and 13 weeks half. And as I said, as I inferred before, you can do a lobotomy and recover in that time. And at that time, you know, for alcoholic, you got fired, period. So I, I was very reluctant to give up uh, crazy and settle <laughs> for alcoholic. Um, I really guess I, I got totally off Johnny's back. In my hope, I had given up on stopping him or killing him. He didn't seem, he seemed indestructible. Um, but the thing was, I felt like a failure. And I had never quit or given up in my life. And Alan on made it okay to do that. They said, you know, it wasn't my job, man. So uh, <laughs> they suggested I have a hobby other than Johnny and insurance policies. Uh, I took up piano and bridge. You know, that'll really equip you to support your children if you have to. But see, they said have a hobby. And that day a thing came from the school district for evening classes, and two of the classes were piano and bridge, and you didn't need a partner, you know, to join either group. Alan Ron became my higher power. If my group, anybody in my group, the person that came in yesterday said to me, excrete, see how my language has improved? If they said to me, excrete, I would squat and grunt. I wouldn't ask any questions. And it, it wasn't improvement, you know, a grandchild and me is higher power. Um, somewhere in there, uh, well, at first, I guess Johnny couldn't believe it because for about nine months, he'd come in the door and scream, shut up. And I hadn't said anything for nine months. But he was so used to the fact that when the door opened, my mouth opened simultaneously that he was still answering from before. Um, he did go to AA somewhere in there. Uh, and it wasn't that big a thrill, I got to tell you. Yeah, at those, those AA meetings, I heard that uh, just stopping drinking doesn't do it. And, you know, if you got it, there was one guy... Uh, in the group I used to go to the open meetings at, and he had a real western twang, and he'd say, um, if it was lower than a maggot and stuff like that, and he'd say, uh, sober up a horse thief, you got a horse thief, there's still work to be done. And uh, I figured, bull, you know, Johnny might not have been Prince Charming before, but he was two cuts above decent, and if he, and if he would just stop drinking and get back to that, we could live happily ever after. So now he's quit drinking, and his mouth never shut, they were at dinner, my children and me, because he was definitely an outsider. And say the three-year-old talks with food in his mouth, or pokes his neighbor, Johnny draws himself up and he says, 
Perhaps I have been somewhat remiss as a husband and father, but you've got 30 seconds to shape up or ship out. And the kids go, huh? <laughs> so I, I didn't discuss it with them because by then I had learned that it, it really is not cricket <laughs> to do that. Um, but I imagine they were thinking what I was thinking, which was, wouldn't it be nice if he just passed out and shut his mouth like he used to? Uh, not too long after that, he did decide he was too young, too handsome, and too highly intelligent to sit in Protestant church basements any longer. And he went out and gave it another go. Um, but that's his story. My story was I went to family court to have the body removed from my premises. And time went on and on and on. Um, <laughs> I uh, went to college as a mature student and um, did various little make worky jobs around, you know, in between the kids and everything. Uh, and they suggested it was time that I get involved in service. And I said, service? The bull gives the cow. <laughs> and the first couple of jobs I had in service, I was sure right. <laughs> it's better now, but in those days, an Al-Anon did not give up a job. I mean, forget a life. Did not job unless they were the group and the air and the state ever. Consequently, the person that got the job had to do with the job in care. And in those days, the manual was to help you. So but tell me perfectly, and so following that route and Al-Anon and everything, by 1972, I hadn't made president, but I had made delegate to Al-Anon's World Service Conference, Panel 12. And, and it's, you know, been a good life. Maureen, uh, with the dirty mouth and the upraised middle finger, uh, she, as did the others, um, benefit from, benefited from Alexine. Uh, and today she's a pediatrician, doing good for others and, and so forth and so forth. Um, I wrote down, AA people are always saying they have fringe, fringe benefits, so I want you to know that Al-Anon people have them too. And I wrote them down somewhere so I wouldn't forget them. Uh, oh, well, the first one is Kathy. We now have four children, and she's an AA baby, a phrase which used to gag me <laughs> in the beginning. Um, she's 25, and she never would have been if we're not for Al-Anon, because by then I knew you didn't have to jump off the refrigerator. Um, I learned to say what I mean um, and to mean what I say. When I was in the everybody should like me stage, I used to put a pussyfoot around something terrible. You know, I'd never say anything straight out or, or make a direct request. And then when I went bananas, I swung to the opposite pole. Uh, around the time that I joined Al-Anon, I was zipping along some parkway, taking my pregnant sister-in-law to the doctor. And a cop pulled me over, and he starts this big dirge, you know, lady with all those children, a pregnant woman in the car. I said, give me the ticket or give me the speech. Don't give me both. <laughs> he gave me the ticket. That wasn't what I had in mind at all. Uh, right now I have cataract problems and, and bright lights bother me. And I, I suppose, honestly, I really shouldn't drive at night. So what I do is I drive cautiously at night. And... <laughs> And I stay to the right, and I blank out the rearview mirror, because even headlights and that, you know, can get me. And what happens is I don't even know where on the road I am, you know. So it's, it's really not a, a good scene there. Um, so anyway, I was, I was moping along in the slow lane with my mirror blacked out. And I knew I was coming to Roosevelt Raceway, which is a large racetrack, and they light it up, like, unbelievably. And that was going to be an assault on my eyeballs. So I slowed down even more. And little did I know that a cop was following me and thought I was a drunk driver. And, and blinking his lights, too, and, and I suppose yelling on the bullhorn, but see, I had the radio on loud, um, and I, in my little cocoon there. 
So then he came around me and cut me off. Then I noticed him and his red light. Then I was chicken to go up on the curb because his red light was fixing it that I couldn't see where the curb was. You know, I kept thinking I was going up on the curb and I wasn't quite making it. And then there were lampposts up there. Oh, bad scene. And then they came up to the car, two of them, and it wasn't my car, it was my son's car. So I push every button in the car and the back windows go down, the windshield. <laughs> but when I finally got the right windows, I did so many sorrows per minute that I almost lost my teeth. Notwithstanding that my license is twice as old as these cops. Sir, 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 sir. And I didn't get any tickets. And there is a, you know, bottom speed limit that you're supposed to maintain. Um, I must say in, about myself that I have really cleaned up my mouth beautifully, except occasionally. Um, when I was really whacked out there, and I had the upper hand in any situation uh, with Johnny or anybody else, if they demurred at something that I said, I would look them straight in the eye and say, tough shit. <laughs> in Al-Anon, I learned to say, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> it means exactly the same thing. But the odd thing is that, that, not all the time, but very often nowadays, you know, I am sorry you feel that way. It's still you know what, but I am sorry. Um, I learned to like myself, and if you like me, that's nice. And if you don't, that's unfortunate. And I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> uh, I got a higher power in Al-Anon that I don't whine at or black deal or bargain with and that I feel comfortable with and and that's maybe the greatest bonus of all. Um, one, one more thing I would like to share with you. Uh, when this one day at a time daily reading book was put together, my sponsor was on the committee that did it and Alice B who was the chairman of our literature committee was in a neighboring group and we're back to coincidences. I won't, I won't read the whole page but just a today's reminder. This is my birthday day. When anything happens to disturb me on this one day, I will ask myself, is it my problem? Does it really matter so much? Is it important? And I'm always amazed to find out how few things are that important. Now, for those of you who... Uh, for those of you who think I talk too fast and you know who you are, let me explain that as I understood it, the format here was that I was supposed to talk a little bit and you were supposed to listen a little bit and I tried like heck to finish before you did. So thank you for listening. 